Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history. Like broccoli, anoraks, or sitting. Or wigs, jigs, and twigs. I love the idea of of doing the history of twigs. It's about sticks. Stick man, we can talk about. Or rigs, migs, the Russian fighter plane, (laughs) uh, and pigs. I think a porcine history of the past uh, is something that's still... Uh, remains to be written. Have we done um, any animals at all? We've done lions. Oh, yeah. Um, I think we've done lions. We've done cats. We've done cats. We need to do dogs. We I think horses do. would be interesting. Uh, when I think about the history of pigs, I'm I'm, I'm just channelling Miss Piggy um, <laughs> you know, from the Muppets. Um, but as we digress, as always, because we're following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of the hand is in fact all about time travel, medieval magic, cave painting, royal power, intimacy and grief. Or that the history of the bed is all about portals to and from this life, fishmongers, privacy, historical education and empires. And if you want to know more about those, you should read about them in our excellent book, Histories of the Unexpected, How Everything Has a History, because we have two chapters on those. We do, and they were great fun to write. Um, I think we've got podcasts on them as well. Uh, we have, la- yes. Ladies and gentlemen, the man not sitting opposite me, we're still across town from each other. We're not sitting in my shed recording as usual. Um, let me just say that if history itself was a shark, then this man would be rummaging around in its stomach looking for human remains. It is <laughs> Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University, the wonderful James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. It's lovely to lovely to be chatting with you again uh, about sharks. Um, uh, the man not sitting opposite me because we haven't dared get into the cramped space of our recording studio and he is across town. Well, let's just say if he were a shark swimming around the archives of history, the coral reefs of history, this man would be a barracuda. So sort of, sort of shark-like, but, you know, sort of... I, what I mean by this is he would be uh, uh, aggressively, tenaciously digging out the truth of history uh, 
uh, and um, and he has a name as well. He is the famous historical adventurer and by friend, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, we are here at Sharks 2 because we uh, had so much fun chatting about sharks that we didn't finish all of the uh, the research that we had uncovered and we didn't want to leave it um, lonely and unused. So we've decided to carry on talking about sharks because there is so much more wonderful stuff to do. But briefly, last time we talked about um, the way that sharks have existed in myth in the Pacific Islands, in Fiji, in Hawaii, ancient Greece. Um, I didn't mention this, actually, that um, linguists believe that the word shark is the only English word to have Yucatan origins. So the Yucatan Peninsula area where the Mayan civilization was grown up. And it stems from uh, what is believed to be a, a, a bastardization, a manipulation of the Mayan word for shark, which is Zoc X. O-C. So you've got a bit of history of imperialism there, why we have um, words from the Yucatan in the English language. We talked about food. We talked about swimming and leisure. I went back to New York in 1916 to describe a hunt where people were hunting for sharks from museum collections. It was uh, very entertaining and a few different um, real accounts, primary sources of people being being taken by sharks. James, what did you do very briefly? We also talked about the, the historical archaeology of the sharks. So we went all the way back to not only the archaeological evidence and the stuff that is found, remains of sharks that are found, which connects sharks to people at particular periods of time, but also to the material culture. So looked at uh, early Roman mosaics um, and, and paintings, um, and also to the written evidence of sharks, all the way back to Aristotle. But we ended with you talking about shark attacks. And I wanted to go on and say something about, about shark attacks. Because scholars have been out and they have recorded unprovoked shark attacks. And they've recorded them for the period from about uh, 1958 to 2018. And during this period around the world, would you believe that there are only um, about 2,785 shark attacks? Yeah. Only about um, less than a quarter of them were in fact fatal. Mm. Most of these happened in the United States uh, uh, and Australia. So they, they account for well over half of them, but also in places like Africa, Asia, Hawaii, the Pacific Islands, South America, Middle America, Europe during that 50, 60 year period has only had 52 shark attacks, only half of which uh, were fatal, so 27 fatal. Um, and Bermuda has only had three shark attacks um, and only and zero of them were fatal. Now, what I, you've talked about shark attacks in um, the 20th century and we've seen shark attacks in films like Jaws. What I want to talk about is shark attacks much earlier in history because there are records of these. If we look back to the ancient authors that I was talking about in the last episode, we saw um, examples there of divers coming across across sharks. But I want to take us to 16th century, um, 16th century uh, Americas, um, because I think what we've got there is a series of writings produced by the conquering Spanish settlers, those early Spanish settlers in the in the New World. And one of them, a guy called Bartolome de las Casas, 
a man who lived between 1484 and 1566, wrote a study of the Americas. And in it, he pens what is probably the first report of a shark attack on humans in the New World. And I've got it here. I mean, the th problem is that the, the, the conquistadors who are over there, the Spaniards, are compel the Indian slaves to go and dive for pearls and force them to do that. Um, and what this tells us a lot about, it's not just about sharks, but it also tells us about the, the, the Spaniards' occupation of that land, um, their attitudes towards the Indians uh, who lived there. But it, this, this extract comes from the third volume of his Historia de las Indias. Um, and he writes, they take them, in other words, the Indians, in their canoes, which are their small boats, and a Spanish executioner goes with them to direct them. Arriving in the deep water, three or four fathoms deep, he orders them to enter the water. They dive and go all the way to the bottom, and there they take the oyster that carry the pearls, and they fill some small nets that they carry around their necks. Commonly, there are two species of beasts, and even three, being very cruel, that eat men and even horses they can tear to pieces. One species is the Tiburones, and the second is the Marajos, uh, and that's probably the great white shark. The third is crocodiles, called Legatos, by those that do not know, in other words, the ignorant. The Tiburones and Legatos, which have admirable teeth, seize a man or a horse by the leg or by the arm or any other part and taking him deep they kill him there and eat him on their own time. The Marios are very much larger and have great mouths and they can swallow a man on the first gulp. On one occasion it happened that an Indian upon diving saw a Marayo close to him and came up fleeing up out of the water onto the canoe. The Spanish executioner argued with him, asking why he had come up so quickly without bringing anything. The Indian said that there was a great fish and that he feared it would kill him. The Spaniard forced him to return to diving and to make sure beat the Indian with a stick. The sad Indian dove and the Mario that was waiting for him charged him and swallowed him. It seems that at the beginning the Indian fought with the fish and there was a swirl in the water for a while. The Spaniard understood that the fish had attacked the Indian and seeing that the Indian was not returning, he killed a small dog that they had in the boat and put it on a hook with a heavy chain, which they commonly carry for these fishes, and threw it into the water. And later the Mario took it, in other words, took the baited hook, for it was not satisfied, I assume the, the Indian hadn't satisfied its hunger, um, and the hook set in such a way that it could not escape. The Spaniard, feeling that the fish was hooked, gave it enough line and slowly returned towards the beach in his canoe or boat. Jumping to land, he called for people to help him. They landed the beast, giving blows with axes and rocks or whatever they had, and killed it, opening its belly they found the unfortunate Indian and took him out. The Indian gave two or three gasps and he died there and then.
Isn't that an extraordinary thing? I mean, it, it, you, I think in the last episode, you talked about people being found whole inside sharks. In armour, yes. Yes, in <laughs> armour. This guy's not armour. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an astonishing account, isn't it? Yes. Um, and I think the sort of the sheer unbelievableness of these accounts is uh, is something that that really kind of resonates and has resonated with humans it, it's all to do with we did a chapter on monsters didn't we and these are very much monsters of the deep and it's to do with humans and the relationship with the with the with with wilderness with wildness and what could be tamed or what can't be tamed as well there's a there's a great and fascinating history there yes and and, and also there's a there's a history of shark prevention that's connected to this that's connected to shark attacks yeah. You know, and and this is particularly it's particularly prevalent in Australia. So along that Gold Coast area on the 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 eastern coast uh, of Australia, all sorts of devices put up uh, shark barriers, shark nets. I didn't really understand what shark nets were, uh, but it seems that they come in sort of several different types. One is to basically um, block to literally sort of net in the coastline so that you can swim in there and apparently sharks off the coast of, of Australia have been have been netted off since about 1936 oh. an awful lot of money has been paid for this but also um, they they catch the sharks in these nets so I think one of the problems nowadays is that you've got this sort of this dilemma between do you keep the the swimmers safe at the at the expense of the sharks that are caught and die in the in these nets, and there are records of quite a lot of of sharks being being caught and killed uh, during this period in New South Wales. Uh, between about um, nineteen fifty and two thousand and eight, you've got over fifteen thousand marine animals killed in these nets, including dolphins, sharks, whales, turtles. So there is a there's an environmental cost to this, but there's a whole history um, a whole history of this. Um, that um, we could develop at great length. Yeah, I'm really surprised that it's the 1930s, actually. I'd have thought that was, a, uh, it's at least 30 years earlier than I suspected. Um, yeah. That's, that's yeah. really interesting. I wonder how that actually came about. I mean, a political movement to have it done, whether um, there were a, like we, we discussed in our first episode, a, a spate of shark attacks. What do you call a frequency of shark attacks? A spate of shark attacks in Long Island and whether... Um, that had just started happening in Australia, whether there were um, changing behaviour practices or people going down to the beach more. What what caused that? Something caused that and it made it happen or come together in the 1930s. Perhaps uh, there was a pot of money available to, to experiment with it and it worked. And then I suppose that it must have spread um, around the country in different places. Um, I, I, I suspect there might have been some kind of um, demonstrations and people power involved in that, James. I imagine, I imagine so, Sam. Yeah. I would need to trawl the archives for that yeah. um, uh, a little more fully. But the relationship with Australia is, is fascinating. I talked a bit about last time about the uh, early 17th century dis people describing Australia and it having this uh, impression, particularly of those who, who don't live in Australia, of it being an island surrounded by sharks. And I found some suggestion that this might have influenced um, the, the thinking of British... Uh, um, uh, politicians who were thinking about the penal system and how that was going to change in the 18th century. 
So previously, you've got convicts being sent across to the Caribbean, convicts being sent to America. Then you have the Ameri- War of the American Revolution. Um, America becomes independent. So, so Britain can't suddenly carry on dumping its convicts in America, which is why they start looking elsewhere. And there was an interesting suggestion that the presence of sharks around Australia was one of the influencing factors for people to choose Australia as a place, as well as it being all the way around the world. But then it made me realise that there are, if you look at uh, accounts of places like Alcatraz, um, or the obvious one is the French penal colony Devil's Island in French Guyana, which operated in the 19th and 20th centuries. Both of those are... Uh, well-known or were renowned for being islands that were surrounded by sharks. So that the whole, the the presence of the shark was a really important part of the identity of these places as penal colonies. And that's something I think that we could look into. I thought I was absolutely fascinated by that. Talking briefly there about the American Revolution. um, When I actually did sit down to think about how we was going to talk about sharks, I realised that sharks had appeared at various important periods in my career. Um, one mm. of the first books I wrote was a, a book about the history of shipwrecks, um, which was shortly before I did my, my BBC three-part series on the history of shipwrecks, Britain's sunken history. And I wrote a chapter there um, about the USS Indianapolis. This is in the summer of 1945, um, where a uh, the, the ship gets lost in the Pacific, no no one um, no one's expecting them back. So when they don't turn back, no one goes looking for them. Um, they are torpedoed by a Japanese submarine. The, the crew fall in the water, and they're picked off pretty much one by one by sharks. There are just a handful of survivors at the end. It's a it's a really really shocking story, and and, and I think the best. Uh, shipwreck shark attack story so that's the USS Indianapolis you need to everyone gonna have a look at that if you can Um, but then much later in my career and I wrote a big book about the maritime naval history of the American Revolution um, I I came across one of the most famous paintings of sharks uh, which is called Watson and the Shark. Uh-huh. Uh, you, yes. You've got something to say about this but it's an oil painting by the American painter John Singleton Copley uh, it was yeah. painted in 1778, so it's at this crisis point in the American Revolution when it looks like the Americans are going to be able to, um, to 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 fight their way free of the British. And he 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 paints this extraordinary image. Everyone, go and look at it. Watson and the Shark. It's called. Um, it's a it's a picture of an English boy called Brooke Watson, and he's attacked uh, when he when he was a, when he was a child many years before this painting was made, for 30 years before or so. He's attacked in the harbour of Havana in Cuba. And Watson, and, and sorry, Copley makes this extraordinary, uh, this extraordinary portrait of it. I've got a contemporary critic's account of it. I'm just going to read to you because it's better than anything I could describe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
The beautiful boy just disentangled from the ravenous bloody monster which had tore away one of his legs cries for that assistance which every one of the honest tars hurries to give without loss of time. So you've got a group of uh, of sailors here trying to help a helpless child surrounded by blood in the water. The boatswain, an elderly man, has catched one of his arms in the noose of a rope and he pulls it clear with prudence and caution. Two sailors, brave fellows, horror bristling their hairs and the eagerness of a compassionate good heart for the poor sufferer in their faces, lean overboard and stretch their hands to help him in so dangerous a manner that the beholder must tremble for fear of their falling overboard and their becoming a prey of a young shark that flies against them swift as lightning with open snout and inexpressible greediness in his flaming eye. The same moment that fine young sailor standing at the helm strikes at him with a lifted boat hook, an idle black prompted by the connate fear of his country for that ravenous fish leans backwards to keep the gunwale of this side of the boat above water. Herein he is assisted by two rowers on the other side, who, less engaged in the more noble part of the other actors, have, of course, their compassion and curiosity stronger expressed in their features. The whole makes an excellent group by the dampness of the hazy hot climate well parted from the background, in which some English man-of-war and the Morrow Castle at the Havana serve to determine the glorious time and place where our tars so nobly exerted themselves. So you get a sense of that. There's a, there's a huge amount going on in this painting. It's been interpreted in so many different ways. At the time, it was criticised in terms of the accuracy of the portrayal. It's very common in um, critics looking at paintings of this time. Is it an accurate depiction of the people? Is it an accurate depiction of the boat? Is it is it leaning over enough with that many people crammed on one side? Um, but then more complexly, and this is where it gets fascinating, it was, it's was it been interpreted in terms of race, because uh, there's a coloured sailor at the front, and it's been interpreted in terms of politics which i think is fascinating so you've got to think about um the politics of the artist what's happening in the world at the time it's based in havana it's chosen this location of havana very symbolic significant signifying the new world so you could you could do a an interesting kind of political reading of it it's 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 painted at dawn suggesting the rising of a new empire here we've got this new empire of america trying to break three from Britain, very much a a conflict, a struggle between the old world of the British Empire and what's going to be happening in the new world. And the the monstrous power of the deep, very much symbolising the Royal Navy and the British Maritime Empire. And it's contrasted with what is essentially um, crazy, barehanded courage of um, these sailors trapped on their tiny little boat, faced with, with... the absolute ferocity. So the sailors representing America and the shark representing um, Britain. And also you've got the sense of the uh, the identity of the 1770s, of this new American identity and how it is very much tied to the sea. So the colonies that rebelled are all of those maritime colonies up the East Coast. And they know that if they are going to break through and they are going to survive, the only way they're going to do it is by establishing a significant network of maritime trade that they want need to be able to maintain for themselves. So the presence of these sailors um, and having uh, multicultural sailors on board the ship is very much 
um, a representation of America, this 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 nascent America as it's trying to break free from Britain. So there we go. Pretty complex shark painting, James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's fascinating is why is it painted? Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, we've got um, Sir Brooke Watson, uh, who's a, a baronet, um, you know, is later in life a pretty important man. He's a merchant. He's a soldier. He becomes Lord Mayor of London. He he knows um, Copley um, and he commissions this. And I think part of it, part of my sort of puzzling about it is why does he why does he commission that? How I mean, this is it's in some ways we we don't we can't necessarily get at that. But what is it that how has the shark attack as a 14 year old boy in, you know, swimming off Havana? How has that impacted on him? How has that sort of physically, I mean, obviously physically changed him, but it's obviously an enormous part of his life. You know, so much so that we have this very, you know, uh, extraordinary painting uh, produced here. And and what's also interesting is if you look at his will, uh, which is dated the 2nd of August 1803, he's really keen that this goes somewhere where it's going to be seen. So it's a, it's a painting that caused a stir at the time, but also that he wants to go and be this sort of almost this memorialization for him. I give and bequeath my picture painted by Mr. Copley, which represents the accident by which I lost my leg in the harbour of Havana in the year 1749 to the the governors of Christ's Hospital to be delivered to them immediately after the decease of my wife, Helen Watson, or before, if she shall think proper, so to do, hoping the said worthy governors will receive the same as a testimony of the high estimation in which I hold that most excellent charity and that they will allow it to be hung up in the hall of the hospital as holding out a most useful lesson to youth. And I think that's fascinating Mm. in itself. You know, the fact that this is a man who has suffered a terrible tragedy as a, you know, as a early teenager and yet has risen, you know, to be such a a sort of an important... um, you know, important, well-connected, powerful individual. And, and in a sense, it, it then makes us think about the, the role of sharks and education there. <laughs> sharks uh, and shark education. attacks and education. So how could we how could we come round in that sort of circle? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. If you want to go and see it, um, the the originals in the National Gallery of Art in Washington. Um, there's a second full size replica in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and there's a third one, which is a bit later. It's really interesting. 1782. It's a slightly different composition. That's in the Detroit Institute of Arts, and I'm lucky to say I've seen all of them. <laughs> it's the only. Actually, Excellent. I've just realised. I think it's the only painting of different um versions that i've i've seen if you see what i mean that makes sense. have you ever seen a shark sam <laughs> um, uh, a question we should have asked ourselves at the beginning of this um i know not in the wild no no i i mean I, yes i've seen a shark in a tank um, but not, in, <laughs> not in the wild but i've been re- i've been reading all sorts of things about you know famous figures who have you know who have experienced shark attacks you mentioned the um the australian prime minister uh who sort of walked yeah. it, w- walked into the sea um and and disappeared but there you know I, I actually think contact with sharks is quite frequent and there are examples of very brave surfers um who are out on their boards and come back 
uh, with chunks bitten out <laughs> or or surfers who have apocryphally like punched a shark on the nose. Hmm. Um, the newspapers, if you do a, a quick Google search, the newspapers are full of brave fathers who rush into the water uh, and punch their children. Yeah. Um, Punch their children, but punch their children. <laughs> punch the sharks in order to stop them attacking their children. Punch the sharks. Well, um, that's all very true. I'm just going to finish with one other account, uh, which I think is really okay. important because it links a couple of, uh, of themes we've come across. And this, uh, I'm, I'm doing this because um, I've got a new book out, James. I hear. This, I saw it on the Twitter sphere. The Twitter sphere. This is my uh, from the British Library, published with the British Library, A General History of the Lives, Murders and Adventures of the Most Notorious Pirates. I've talked about this quite a bit in um, the last few uh, months because I've been working on it. Uh, it's, a, it's a reproduction of a, an original first uh, edition of a fantastic book. It's a collection of, of lives of pirates. In the British Library, I wrote the introduction. The uh, really interesting thing about this is that very much like the history of sharks, the history of pirates is linked, as I said at the beginning, with the increase in European colonies, people living in and around the New World. And here, the, the, what I'm going to be talking about here is the link between slaves and sharks and piracy. Um, and just think about the farming economies of the New World um, powered by slave labour. And more broadly, you've got this really interesting cultural collision between white Europeans and, and native inhabitants. And it, it's a recurring theme in the book. Um, the Royal African Company itself, it was set up in 1672 with a monopoly of the English slave trade. And it's a, transported approximately 212,000 slaves by 1731. And that also is a significant presence in the text when piracy and slavery um, come together. Um, contemporary opinion of the slave trade is actually interesting because you can see it through the author's pen. We hear in the life of Huel Davis how, um, here we have, the slaves have yet no hard duty with them. They are rather happy in slavery. So that's one view of slavery. But there are also accounts of, of atrocity. In the life of Captain Martel, you've got a slave ship is burned by pirates with 20 slaves still aboard. And there's another account of Bartholomew Roberts. And what he does is he sets fire to um, a slave ship with 80 slaves still chained together on the decks. And this is where slaves and sharks come together. I'm just going to read you a little account of this. This is from the life of Bartholomew Roberts. Now, out of all of the different lives of pirates, Bartholomew Roberts was the was one. Of, it's one of the most shocking, um, one of the most shocking accounts. Now, the ship at the time is in somewhere called Wydar, which is a kingdom on the coast of West Africa, and, and it's now Benin, and it was a major slave trading area. The ship lay in the road, almost slaved, when the pirates came in. And the commander, being on shore settling his accounts, was sent to for the ransom. But he excused it as having no orders from the owners, though the true reason might be that he thought it dishonourable to treat with robbers, and that the ship separate from the slaves, towards whom he could mistrust no cruelty, was not worth the sum demanded. Hereupon Roberts sends the boat to transport the slaves in order to set her on fire, but being in haste and finding that unshackling them would cost so much time and labour, they actually set her on fire. With 80 of these poor wretches on board, chained two and two together, under the miserable choice of perishing by fire or water, those who jumped overboard from the flames were seized by sharks, 
a voracious fish, very common in this road, and in their sight tore limb from limb alive, a cruelty unparalleled, and for which had every individual been hanged, few could have thought that justice had been rigorously executed. Very shocking account there of Bartholomew Roberts setting fire to a slave ship with slaves aboard, and those poor few who managed to get overboard were then eaten by sharks. So there's an important history there, actually, of its own, um, and I reckon there'll be other examples which we could uncover. Ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed our um, two-part shark um, shark episode. James, what, what are we going to be doing next? Uh, I, I think we could do all sorts of things. Hmm. We've talked about doing laughter. Yep. We've talked about doing uh, the kitchen, uh, yes. which I think would be brilliant. <laughs> I think we've talked I want to do stomachs, having done, having done... Running be... away. Oh, yes, running uh, away. Backstabbing. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think we could do all... I think we should line these all up. What do you fancy doing next, Sam? Running away. Let's do running away. Running away, run away. I feel a bit trapped in my house with all of these uh, requirements of not being allowed to go out ever since it I've, happened, lockdown. So I've, you... I've been running a lot over lockdown and have just pulled a hamstring. Oh, so ow. running away is something I cannot do. <laughs> and I made the mistake of... I was recording uh, some lectures for my first years at Plymouth University last week and got so carried away um, that because uh, I was filming myself that I realised that I was late for to pick up my daughters from school. And so I legged it in the car barefoot uh, and got out, um, legged it to, to go and pick them up and promptly re-pulled my hamstring. <laughs> so um, Tough luck, the, tough luck. The, the dangers of, of, of online teaching yeah. for me. Um, let's do running away. Um, running I've just realised I've got some good. wonderful slave stories about running away. Ah, um, I carry will on have to get my theory. thinking cap on. Yeah, OK, uh, we'll do running away, and um, that will come to you next week, guys. Uh, thank you very much for listening. As ever, do please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And I am on at James Dable. The pod is on at Unexpected Pod. And if you're interested in seeing something that I have just had come out, uh, you can read it on open access in Museum International, and it is called Gendering Objects at the Victoria and Albert and Vassar Museums. It's all about the brilliant museum uh, in London and also the wonderful Vassar Ship Museum and how we use gender as a lens to interpret uh, museums. Nothing to do with sharks, but uh, free and, and a, a right rollicking read. I bet you could have found something to do with sharks in the V&A. I bet they've got shark's teeth. I bet they've got all sorts of things. I bet they've got garments made out of shark skin. Yeah, they do. They'll have they'll have necklaces and all sorts, won't they? It'll be fascinating. I'm sure they will. Mm. Yeah. Well, Great. This um, is all about hats. This okay, article. Yeah, right. You want good hats. Hats. Hats are good. Um, yes. Do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com. Um, all of our previous episodes there, and also on Acast. Um, if you'd like to help, we'd really, really appreciate it. Um, please log on to patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected, where you can select a variety of membership levels to help us out. You can be a knight and dame for just two dollars a month, a lord and lady for five, or a prince and princess for ten, and um, we'd appreciate it. We'll give you a name check. And um, there'll be other goodies as well, I think. Thank you. I, I think we should add another layer. I think we should add Master or Mistress of the Universe as well. <laughs> okay, the historical universe. Um, exactly. Guys, thank you all so much for listening and speak to you soon. Bye bye. Bye, guys. Hold up. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.